0: You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Duncan Quinn has collected special people as clients for his bespoke clothing business for almost 20 years. Suit lovers, Pulitzer Prize and Oscar winners, self-made billionaires, global fashion designers and entrepreneurs of every flavour all seeking the curated experience and curated life that start with a visit to his tailoring business in New York City. He's been featured in newspapers, magazines and TV shows all over the world, including the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Town & Country, Forbes, The FT, The Guardian, Le Monde and many others. In his spare time, Duncan drives fast, drinks the finest wines known to man. He has his own rose brand and sails the high life around the world, which he writes about as a senior editor for Maxim magazine. Duncan, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple.
1: Well, good morning and thank you for having me. I
0: wonder if you could kick off by telling us how you came to New York in the first place. So, I
1: was in London in the mid-90s. I had started working as a lawyer and I was going out way too much and having way too much fun. So I decided to take a little break from, from work, and I came over here to study law even more. Uh, so I went to Columbia, and I did a master's in law at Columbia for a year, thinking that it would just be kind of a jolly, because at university in England, it seemed to all be a jolly for me. I ran nightclub parties for the whole time I was there and basically never went to law school except for the month before the exams when I went to the library. It was a little different here because these people seemed to show up at 8 o'clock in the morning and go home at 1 o'clock in the morning. They took it very seriously, which I found almost marginally offensive because I thought we were supposed to be there to have fun. Uh, But in, in amongst it, I met some wonderful people. I was in a class of about 200 guys and girls from mostly South America at that period of time. So I made some really good friends down in Argentina. Brazil and Chile and all over the place. It was kind of, it was a good time. I was I was mostly uptown in Colombia, apart from when my crazy friend from Milan would decide he needed to go to the nightclub life every single weekend from 125th <laughs> Street all the way downtown and back up again. There we go, we suffered him because he was very funny and we called him Sepico or Don Don Melzi.
0: <laughs> so you finished your studies and you, did you stay in New York?
1: Yeah, sure. So what happened was I, I did most of my classes... Um, well, as many as I could with the MBA guys. So more than half of the stuff I studied was part, part really of the JD MBA program or, the, or purely the MBA program. And one of the classes was called Private Equity and Venture Capital Investing. It was taught by the guy who was the head of private equity at Kirkland and Ellis. Um, the guy who was the head of tax at Wild Gottschall, the guy that ran the Princeton Endowment Fund, and then a bunch of sort of characters who came in to sort of do case studies of how they built their businesses over time, and it was really a nasty class in some respects because you only got two credits for it, and it sort of took up more time and effort than the entire rest of the syllabus that you were studying. But it was such a sort of fulfilling class and so interesting and fun that everybody sort of suffered the pain of you know constantly being sleep deprived when not out night Basically, the the Kirkland and Ellis guy offered me a job having put the entire year at Columbia on a credit card, I figured I should probably take a job. And we should put in context at the time that back then, lawyers in London at fancy law firms were probably getting paid, once you adjusted for the currency exchange, I would have said 15% of what they were getting paid in New York City. So it was, a, it was an enormous gap. And I was never going to be able to pay off what I had to pay for Columbia on the credit card by going back to London and taking that kind of money. So I stayed here. Happily accepted the offer at Kirkman and & Ellis and basically worked 24 hours a day until I moved on to other things, shall we say.
0: The the class at Columbia, how much did that also start to hone your business acumen?
1: I mean, hone's a good word. It's sort of interesting. I mean, I, I feel at this point, honestly, when I look back in, in the rearview mirror, as if I probably learned more about business when I ran parties when I was at Bristol University than anything else i was this 18 year old kid with long hair and two banana cell phones like the ones in the matrix (laughs) back in so retro back in the early 90s this was (laughs) Uh, i mean i probably looked like some very dodgy drug dealer but basically (laughs) i was always sober didn't drink and ran all the parties because of the fact that when i got to bristol there wasn't really anywhere fun for the kids to go and my brother had dj'd on pirate radio and at raves since he was very young so we I. I got together with a Zambian guy and a Tanzanian guy because they had a sound system. And we threw one party and then it went really well. And the girls seemed to like the idea and I made some money and I was like, well, maybe we can do a bit more of this. So we did it every couple of weeks for three years and ended up doing bigger things, flying in people from New York and people like Tim Westwood and Todd Terry and raves in fields for 3000 people. and. All kinds of fun and games, which, when you're sort of 18 or 19 years old, I guess you don't realise how much you're really learning about the human nature and mm-hmm. business, and how to get things done, and how to overcome challenges, and find things that you need that you didn't even know you need. And I think much of business is just really that—it's facing up to challenges and just not giving up.
0: It's interesting because that is clearly so entrepreneurial and very early entrepreneurial spirit, and. Having got to know you, I would say that you are both a successful business owner, but you also have a very entrepreneurial eye. And yet you found yourself initially in a very established law firm. <laughs> Do you see that as a, a sort of blip on your career? Or uh, how, how did it actually... Yeah, there's a very good explanation.
1: Yeah. I think, anyway, so my father was cop at Scotland Yard. Uh, I'm not still quite sure exactly what he did but I'm fairly certain he was either in Special Branch or the Sweeney. Um, Nice. And I guess, you know, growing up, he came from Scotland and he, I guess, looked at lawyers when he saw them in court and thought they had very stable lives and made very good money. He'd never met a banker from Goldman Sachs, obviously, which is why I turned down the job offer from Goldman that I got. You know, I think all lawyers want their kids, all all, all cops want their kids to be lawyers. So somehow I, I kind of I sort of made an effort to do that for a while. But eventually I just sort of figured out that it wasn't really where my strengths lie. And, you know, much as I probably could have still done it, it was just sort of soul destroying for me inside because I didn't think there was the level of creativity in it that I really sought Mm -hmm. intellectually. I mean, I find law fascinating to study, but the day to day of shuffling the paper, especially the bigger things become, the more formulaic it becomes, because the more risk is involved in changing things. It really just wasn't for me. I guess at a certain point also, I realized there was nowhere in New York at the time really to have really nice handmade suits made. You could go to Bergdorf and you could buy a very expensive keton suit, and it looked as if it was cut for your grandfather and three sizes too big or you could go to like you know the guy in the corner in the, in the laundry and have him make you one and it was terrible. And there were admittedly a couple of guys over here, but I guess at the time I didn't even know they were here. And so I opened this little store in, in New York while I was at Kirkland and Ellis, really just as a creative outlet and for fun. I spent nine months trying to find a space, found a space that I could get cheaply in an area that I thought was really interesting in Nolita, which at the time was pretty loose and kind of had some interesting things going on there. It wasn't quite as corporate as it is now. ran this thing from the get go really for fun and games and uh, sacrificed my salary to, to move it along. And then eventually, I guess when I left Kirkland, I think they changed all the rules for everybody who joined after me and made them sign a contract that said they wouldn't do things like the things that I did. But basically got to a crossroads where I either had to really seriously look down the path and be a corporate lawyer. Or I had to jump ship and kind of take the risk of doing something that I found way more fun. And so it just seemed very clear to me that I was going to enjoy life much more if I went and took the risk than if I stayed and became successful like the guys I worked with financially, but who were still in the office at four o'clock in the morning every day of the week and you know whose kids thought that they had another house because they slept on the sofa so much that they never went home. So there we go. And and that was really partly the genesis of the store. Uh, and it just went from there. And from very early on, I was lucky because, as I said, no one was really doing this. And so I think within a week of opening, there was a, a, a sort of an internet sensation back in the day called Daily Candy that came in and they described it as sort of an, an oversized broom closet with the best glad rags from across the pond. <laughs> And then I think six months in, there was like a six page thing in the New York Times Sunday magazine with Tom Brown and a couple of other guys. And it just sort of went from there and slowly but surely people started to come. And, and this store was on a tiny part of the street in Nolita that virtually no one would go to. It was kind of the dog end of Spring Street. So you really had to be looking for it to find it. You know, there were comedy stories like, you know, a guy walking in and saying he'd been trying to find us for months on end. He'd seen some guy wearing these really cool shirts and asked him where they were from. But he wouldn't tell him, you know, and so he eventually found us by chance. And it was kind of really sort of interesting how it evolved. And and I was lucky. I would had suits made and I knew all the guys that I I needed to sort of make everything from the start. And so it was a a sort of a natural thing for me to kind of get into. I was always very good as a kid at spatial things. Mm. I always kind of score off the charts when it comes to, the, you know, the kind of Visualize how to turn around the box and fit it in the right hole on the paper in the right color or whatever. And I wanted to be an architect or a stuntman as a kid. So now I'm an architect for people's bodies. And the stuntman part comes from all the car car test driving and motorcycles and sailboats and all that
0: kind of stuff. Which we're definitely going to come on to because I love living vicariously through your lifestyle. I was going to ask you, and I think maybe you've answered the question, how much was it about your own personal interest in? dressing well and how much it was spotting a gap in the market but it sounds like it was actually a mixture of the two
1: yeah it was probably a mixture of both i mean there was definitely a need that was evident to me because of the fact that i was constantly going to europe to buy things and have things made in london and in italy and in the south of france and people were stopping me in the street and asking me where i got it from Uh, i've always been a little unconventional I, I, i used to go to work on a a gas-powered scooter that did about 35 miles an hour and had no brakes. So I'd be going up uh, Park Avenue in a three-piece chalk-stripe suit on this gas-powered monstrosity. People were just asking me, and I think it was just really that there was nothing here back then that was fun and really well-made. You could find really well-made and you could find fun, but generally speaking, the well-made stuff was very boring and all and stuffy, and the fun stuff was basically garbage that fell apart very quickly. And I always enjoyed fun things that were well-made. And so, yeah, a lot of it was really just people asking me and me thinking, well, I'm kind of fed up with going and buying things for myself all the time, coming back and people asking me. And I just thought, I'll open this little store and see what happens. And it was kind of a side project that I didn't think too much about at the time, other than that it could be a lot of fun. And I guess that's what it continued to be and still is.
0: And I love that it's as much about the lifestyle as it is about the quality of the outfit and you've got a great quote on your website that says we're not your average suit maker it's not just about taking measurements and you choosing your cloth it's about achieving a mission maximizing you for the challenges you'll be faced with in life
1: well there you go i mean i think that, that sums it up well i may have even written
0: that <laughs> i hope so i think we found it on your website
1: Also, what really fascinated me, and I think ultimately the the reason that I'm so interested in this is I love the psychology of of people. And I think that clothing and perception are intertwined in a very powerful way. I mean, they've done many, many studies that show all kinds of interesting things. I mean, um, amongst which are that, you know, when you dress up and put on a beautiful suit, it actually changes the way that you think about things. And it literally can make you more successful just by doing that. I also love the fact that people still judge you by, you know, everyone judges a book by its cover still, even though they shouldn't. And so part of the fun for me is modulating and playing with the visual messaging, because we have to remember also 80 to 90 percent of communication is visual. It's not what comes out of your mouth. It's what you see. And so if you dress a person one way, people will think one thing. And if you dress them another way, they'll think something entirely different. It, it's almost like, you know, I look at it as if you're trying to dress someone for a movie. And it's really about understanding what's the movie that they're trying to present to the world and what's what are they trying to achieve and what can you do to help them maximize whatever that is through the way that you dress them and the messaging that that kind of basically portrays to everybody else. Wow,
0: that's quite deep. I love that. It, it takes clothing and, and I guess the art of tailoring to a different level. I'm interested in your thoughts on tailoring as a form of fashion, as opposed to lifestyle.
1: For the most part, I have nothing to do with fashion at all. And I don't think anyone who makes similar things to what I do does. And, and within that, I would, I would kind of include everything that's kind of purely artisanal. I mean, I think that the, the approach of most fashion houses And there's a great book about this actually. It's called Deluxe The Death of Luxury. And it was written by an investigative journalist about 10 or 15 years ago, basically tracking the supply chain for LVMH and what's now caring. All the way back to China. Fashion houses that make enormous amounts of money really are trying to capitalize on the psychology of people. Most people. I hate to say it, you know, want to be accepted. And so therefore, they want to look like everyone else, they want to have the same brands as everyone else. Some people want to express their individuality. And I think those people tend to go towards artisanal products that are made in a very, very different way. And often the people that are drawn to those, are drawn to them because of how they're made as much as because of what they are what i do is more in that end of the world i mean it's style it's more timeless we're trying to make things that last for generations not things that last for six months and that everybody you know thinks is amazing for six months and then they move on to the next thing on some level that gives you the luxury of being able to spend much more money time and effort making them but it also makes it more complicated because in today's world there are less and less people who actually have the skills to do these things mm. to that kind of level
0: do you think that the pendulum is likely to swing more in favor of people making more conscious decisions particularly on the back of climate change and sustainability and and other issues around fast fashion and workers rights do, do you see a, a a shift in favor of people buying less but buying better quality
1: again it comes down to how does society move as a herd and why you know i mean the analogy might be there was a great lecture ted talk given by a professor from stanford maybe five years ago about travel and energy and he basically went into great depth about the adoption of electric cars and how within the time period he was talking about of the next five to ten years which was he was talking about this five years ago mass adoption of electric cars would actually happen you know not because they were better for the climate not because they're green not because of anything other than the pure fact that economically there would come a point when it was actually much, much cheaper for someone to have an electric car and maintain an electric car than it was to have um, one that was powered by fossil fuels, mostly because there are only about, I think, 17 moving parts in an electric car versus thousands and thousands in anything that runs on. Uh, fossil fuel. It's easy to think that people will just adopt as en masse more sustainable things. But ultimately, it really comes down to money, which right now, given the state of the economy in most of the world, I think, you know, if you look at the general market for fashion, people are struggling because of inflation, they're struggling because of, you know, all kinds of economic problems. And then, you know, you have the pocket above that of sort of luxury fashion. And, I'm not sure those people really care as much as we'd like to think they do about saving the planet. It ultimately comes down to, to the responsibility of the fashion houses to create the messaging and to make it cool for people to buy the things that are better for the planet. The people who are making these items because it's only really through that messaging and it being adopted by the people who buy luxury fashion that the houses themselves will change the processes that they use and the policies that they have in place with regard to the people who are making the products
0: you talk about the, the the wider economic challenges at the moment and i'm also interested in both during covid and coming out of covid how that has had an impact on your business
1: so covid was tricky because of the fact that you know i guess everybody was holed up i think i made a suit for somebody in february 2020 and then the next one i made was september 2021 wow. The store was more or less closed for that entire period of time i mean we were forced to be closed for whatever it was i don't know three four months um but then there was just really no one around uh because i think everybody was just still extremely concerned about their health because of the way that covid was messaged to people you know that obviously poses its own challenges which is where we you know you sort of circle back to what i said when you're running nightclubs as a kid and you realize that really, life is about rising to challenges and fixing problems and figuring out ways to make things work. So, you know, there were lots of discussions with landlords and suppliers and all kinds of people. And luckily, I also have some really fantastic clients who would call me up and say, well, I don't really need anything, but, you know, can you make me a handmade pair of bespoke gold sunglasses to go with my cufflinks and ring that I have from you? And how much do I need to pay you for those? And the answer is quite a lot of money. Paired up with um, my buddies who run Maison Premier, uh, which won the James Beard Award for its cocktail program. And so we put in place uh, a series every Friday night all the way through COVID. We basically got together with them and we made cocktails in tuxedos on Zoom. Another buddy who he has what I think is the finest import company of spirits in the US. Um, it's called P.M. Spirits, and he only basically sells and distributes the most fantastic things. So every week we would send out an email to everybody who was on the list saying, here's the shopping list this week. Here are all the P.M. Spirits things we need you to buy. And these are the cocktails that we're going to make. And then we would get on Zoom on a Friday night and we would make cocktails. And um, Will Elliott from Maison Premier would basically lead us with the first couple and then wise man that he was because he was on the west coast and he was doing this at like four in the afternoon he would then hop off and uh, we would turn into degenerates and you know continue to make three or four or five more drinks and, until we'd had enough and uh and we kind of moved on to to that sort of happy place of falling asleep on the sofa i think everybody sort of struggled with it um to a certain extent so
0: i love that you i was going to say made lemonade uh, with the lemons through COVID, um, but really it's cocktails. But also a good segue into your, uh, your, your interest and enthusiasm and um, uh, business around wine. Can you tell me a bit more about how you got into that space?
1: So, I mean, this is a story that goes back for decades again. Uh, one day a letter showed up at Scotland Yard from a guy in the south of France. Uh, Basically saying, I have a son who's around a certain age, does anyone else have a son who wants to learn to speak French? Because I want my son to learn to speak English. And so my dad came home and wandered out into the garden to our little suburban house and said, you know, do you want to go to France? And I said, well, you know, I think yes, I'd like to go to France, because I'd figured out it was in the south of France, and I understood that meant naked ladies on the beach. Probably much better than cycling around with my buddies in the suburbs. So I got on a plane, which back then the only flights to Nice were on British Airways or Air France, and it was inordinately expensive. Um, I felt sorry for my dad in retrospect. I mean, I think my ticket in 1982 was £250 for a student ticket. So I was the little kind of nerdy kid with the thing around my neck because I was traveling on my own. But I was quite excited because I got onto the plane and James Bond was on the plane with me. Roger Moore and his wife and Michael Caine and his wife were in first class. And then I got off and hated the kid and he hated me. We were just very, very different people. Wonderful guy. but I guess we just thought about the world differently. But I guess what happened was his parents really liked me. So they just said, look, come whenever you want. So I would go every summer for three or four months and the kid would leave and go on holiday and I would become the surrogate son. And what that meant was I would be sitting in the garden from 10 o'clock at night until the small hours of the morning with the ministers and the judges and all the cops and having like all these really amazing dinners because uh, the wife was just a fantastic cook and it would be, do you want to try this? This is pasties. Do you want to try this? You know, this is white wine from Burgundy. Do you want to try this? This is from Bandol. Why don't you try some uh, Eau de Vie, Williams after dinner? Which was kind of hilarious because I was a little kid. But I mean, this went on like all through my teens until, I don't know, I just kind of kept at it. I'm still very good friends with the family now. Um, But that really laid a foundation that I think is quite unusual because I kind of essentially grew up with a grasp of French culture, French food, the French love of wine and, and sort of, dinner parties and it stuck with me and and I've always enjoyed bringing together people for fun things and I've always found that you know great wine acts as a fantastic social lubricant so somehow along the way that turned into throwing lots of lots of really amazing dinners that I still do collecting friends who are you know three-star Michelin chefs and winemaking families that make some of the finest wine in the world helping a team of guys actually buy wine from things like the Hospice de Bonne, which is the biggest charity auction in the world for wine because I've always been somebody who did what people now refer to as experiential marketing i kind of hate it when things become a buzzword because like it, it, it sort of when things become mainstream and it gets a, a label on it, it it often loses its its shine for me Just the way that over here in the States, when I first started making suits, I had to explain to people what the word bespoke meant. And and when I say people, I mean journalists at very renowned magazines and fashion magazines, they've never heard the word over here. And now you can get a bespoke suit online from a Chinese factory for a couple of hundred bucks, which obviously makes the whole idea of it completely laughable. In a similar vein, I've been doing experiential marketing things forever because I ran the nightclub parties at university. I really enjoyed doing that. To be honest, the thing that makes me happiest is putting a smile on other people's faces. From when the store of Ray first opened, we've always had parties and dinners and events. And one year, one of the clients, who was a new client, basically he grew up in a very, very fancy American car family. And he said to me, look, I want to go to Monaco for the Grand Prix. And because I'd spent so much time in the south of France from when I was a very small kid, I have lots of friends down there. And so I said, sure, let's do it. So we put together a group of guys and we we charted this fantastically beautiful, classic sail, sailing yacht, uh, which is about 55 meters long. So it's one of the biggest sailing yachts in the world. And uh, Krug Champagne came and did lunches for us and Chateau Palmel came and did dinners for us. I also, at the back of my mind, when I was getting into this, thinking well these guys need to understand that when you're in the south of france what you really drink is rosé so i went and reached out to some of the people i've known since i was a little kid and said look you know i want to start making rosé with you guys so we started bottling rosé in small batches just for this boat for monaco for the grand prix in 2012 which i guess is 10 years ago the guys on the boat liked it so they said could they get some in new york we imported a little bit to new york people liked it and it just sort of grew from there and you know it sort of it's become an interesting thing, though, because the marketplace in the States now has become really crowded, because every sort of Tom, Dick and Harriet on Instagram, or who's a celebrity, has an agent who told them that Rosé would be a great thing to do to make money because of the fact that it grew so enormously in the States. Um, I like to think very few of them actually have a story behind it in the way that I do. But, you know, it's a, it's a crowded marketplace right now. so. It's a bit more of a battle than it was when it started, but I guess you know it's another thing that went from fun to business.
0: I love it. It's 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 a real common theme for you, actually. It's how you you take the stuff that you love and you you monetize it.
1: It's difficult to pursue riches alone of a financial kind, purely because when I when I sort of look around myself for many many years. I struggle with people chasing after that because no one's ever going to remember that you who you were or what you did. I think people look for legacy and there is really no legacy in, in making lots and lots of money unless you're exceptionally special. My dad was the president of the Burns Club of London. I hated it as a kid, but you know, I guess later on, I ended up starting the one at Soho House when they opened in New York and I've run a Burns Night here that's a very unconventional one that's really lots of fun and kind of drunken comedy and bagpipes and fire breathing and, lunacy, rather unlike the very staid ones that I went to as a kid. But there's a speech at Burns Night that comes after the dinner that's called The Immortal Memory, which is really just sort of the story of Robert Burns. And one of the things that I often touch upon that really fascinates me is asking people to make a list of names of people that they know and what they did from 250 years ago or more. And invariably that list contains artists and creative people and almost never contains anyone who had anything to do with money so it, it's always been to me sort of an illusory thing to pursue and so i've always pursued things that i found fun and enjoyable with fun and enjoyable people hence my little jolly often on instagram or on the website which is said which says i'm looking for characters with character
0: and who are your style icons or lifestyle icons or heroes?
1: Different people sort of make it into the lexicon of of my head of ideas. But I think a lot of what I do is really driven by Michael Caine's movies in the 60s, like Get Carter um, and the early Bond movies with with, uh, Sean Connery.
0: And if you were to create a cocktail of your life, what would the main ingredients be? (laughs)
1: a version of something that i don't drink very often so i love armagnac do you love krug there's a version of the french 75 which is actually made with normally cognac but we could make it with armagnac lemon juice sugar syrup and krug champagne
0: final question on a theme of cocktails because why not if you were to create a cocktail of your success what would the key tenets be (laughs) Be all
1: and end all of it is tenacity. So it's funny, my high, my high school motto was was incubate, which means begin. You have to begin is the key. And I think many, many people spend too much time analyzing risks to the point where that they dissuade themselves from doing things. You really just have to start because, I mean, as the old joke goes, if you want to make God laugh, tell him you have a plan. Plans always change. I think what happens really with anything is You can only set sail in your ship and head for the other shore, decide what to do when the wind changes and the storms come and all these things happen that blow you off course. You just have to remember where you're headed and make sure to sort of adjust for that along the way to make sure that you still arrive at the destination that you thought you were going to, or perhaps an even better one that you discovered along the way. You need to have persistence and tenacity. That's the most important thing of all.
0: Duncan Quinn, thank you so much for giving an insight into your amazing story. I love the fact that you have been able to couple together uh, your own passions with uh, your business and entrepreneurial acumen. Thank you for letting us briefly live vicariously through your really interesting and incredible life. And thank you for coming on Brits in the Big Apple.
1: Well, I'd like to say thank you to you also. I'd also just say this. I think, you know, I'm extremely lucky really because the only reason I get to have all this fun is because other people support what I do and come in and exchange their hard-earned money for the beautiful things that I can put into their life. Without them, none of this would exist. And without talking to people like you so that other people can even find out about what I do, none of this would exist. So I'm just very grateful that I can do something that's super fun and the people appreciate it enough that they're happy to sort of support it.
0: And your rosé is excellent. Uh,
1: I'm not going to (laughs) disagree. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.